Okay, guys, find Daniel chapter 11. This is the second to last chapter. We are coming down the home stretch. So this morning we'll begin uh, a two-part series that will close out our studies in the book of Daniel. Um, and this is an amazing chapter. It's an amazing chapter, and I'm very encouraged, having gotten through first service, that we can do it again. But it was <laughs> it was challenging, and um, you'll know why shortly. So it's been made abundantly clear throughout the book of Daniel that God knows the future of nations. That's been this recurring theme that comes up over and over again. God knows the future of nations. He is sovereign over other nations. And chapters 2, 5, 7, 8, and 9 thus far have contained prophetic visions. We've had prophetic visions that were given to Daniel that pertain to a number of different things, both current events that were happening around him and things that were going to be happening in the future. And as we stand here in this position, we see things um, that were in Daniel's time. We see things that were going to be coming for him, which are in the past for us now, historical things. And we see things that are future still. We saw that in Daniel chapter 9. There's prophecies that were given to Daniel that have not been fulfilled yet. So we look forward to those things happening in our, hopefully, our lifetime, and if not, beyond us. Chapter 11, when it comes to a historical prediction, stands by itself. Uh, chapter 11 is is often agreed upon by many scholars to be the most detailed prophetic vision in all of the Bible. And the reason we say that it's so detailed and it stands alone is because we have such an amazing historical record to look at and see how all these things played out. And so when it comes to detailed historical prediction, and we look and we consider these things, it's something that we want to pay attention to that detail and that accuracy because God gave it to us for a reason. He gave it to Daniel for a reason, and he gave it to us at this point in time for a reason to build our faith. And leading up to the body of the vision given to Daniel in chapter 11, the angel tells Daniel in chapter 10 that his battle in the spiritual realm isn't over. We talked about that last time we were in Daniel. That Daniel began praying for something. He began praying and and started fasting and setting himself apart to the Lord, seeking for the Lord to provide fresh vision. And as he did that, the angel says, listen, the moment that you started praying, God sent me. But it took me 21 days to get here because I was in a battle. He's like, I was in a spiritual battle in the heavens and Michael, the archangel came and showed up and helped me fight this battle. And I got to you and he tells us at the end of chapter 10, I'm going back now and we have to fight again because the prince of Greece is coming. And before it was the prince of Persia he was standing up against. There's this spiritual battle that's going on as these nations are coming and taking over power of this region. And so we saw there that there was a really cool connection for us. Not only that spiritual warfare is real, but we saw that Oftentimes when we pray, God may not answer right away in the way that we think he will. In other words, God gave the answer, but it took time for that vision to come to Daniel. And we should never cease to pray and to seek after it from God because we don't see what's happening in the spiritual realm. If we did, you know, we might freak out a little bit. So this morning, as we observe this text, the most precise predictions, quite possibly in the Bible, that we've seen come to pass These are so precise that many scholars have argued that this is a pseudo-prophecy. In other words, it's a prophetic thing that was written after these events because it's too accurate to to have been written before. But doesn't that diminish how we view God? Doesn't, Doesn't that diminish how we view who God is and what he says? And according to scripture, God called all of this before it happened. And so we don't want to fall under this this temptation to look at things through our own eyes, but to see that God is sovereign and omniscient. And it can be tempting to view things in the way of the world if we haven't established a biblical view of who God is and how powerful he is. And if God is outside of time and he's looking at the beginning and can see the end as well, then why can't he show us what's happening at different points in time? That's what biblical prophecy is. God giving us a view of what he's already seen happen. And it blows our mind because we're finite. You know, I don't even know what I'm having for dinner tonight. But God's like, hey, check it out. This is going to happen for centuries. And here's all the details you need. It's kind of mind-blowing. So if we truly believe that God is omniscient, then we have no problem believing that he revealed the truth of future events to Daniel. And that means I can trust what he knows about my future, about my family's future, and my nation's future right here and right now. That's an important thing for us to remember. God isn't baffled or wondering what's going to happen to America. He already knows. He already knows what's going to happen in this world, and he's already shown us some of the things that are going to happen at the very end. And as we get closer and closer, we start to key in on these things, don't we? We start to look around and go, oh, well, that actually fits. 
That makes sense. You know, that could be, and that could be. Now, we can't get too crazy because then we become a Maccabee. Ha, just kidding. But we, we start looking at, you know, these things that, sorry, Mark, I apologize. That was, I can feel your disappointment in me. But if you, if you look ahead and you see these things, we can start to see the signs of the times, as Jesus said in the book of Matthew. So that means that I can trust what he knows about what's coming for me and for my country and for my church. And you know what? In the end, he's the one that made me. And my family is his. And my church is his. And this nation belongs to him too, whether they recognize it or not. So we can rest in that. And we can be busy. As we talked about last week in Nehemiah chapter 6, we can be busy about the work that God has given us to do and not get distracted. So as we delve into the details of this passage, let this settle into our hearts. And if this sets in your heart and the rest is just kind of information that you have to go research later, that's okay. That's okay, because I am going to fire hose this morning. And I apologize for that, sort of, but not really. But what I want us to walk away with is this. God is sovereign over my life, my family, my church, and my country. I want us to walk away from this text with that in mind. God is sovereign over my life, my family, my church, and my country. And I want you to repeat that aloud if you need it, as you pray, and as things go on in your life from here on out. When you are worried about your kids, when you are worried about your families, when you're worried about your job and you're worried about your country, I want you to repeat that God is sovereign over all of these things. He is sovereign over my life. I don't have to worry. That's why Jesus said, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. He's like, don't worry about all the things that the world worries about. He's like, the Lord knows what you need. Walk with him. Trust in him. The revelation we're about to read is easier to understand if we look at it in three parts. So let's start breaking this down. Here's the three parts of the vision going all the way through chapter 12, verse 4. Beginning section, and it'll be on the screen behind you. The first section is the history of the Near East, which is Daniel to Antiochus Epiphanes, covering the time period of 530 to 175 BC. It's going to be this chapter 11, verses 1 through 20. The second section, or the second part, if you will, is going to be the career of Antiochus Epiphanes himself from 175 to 163 BC. That's in chapter 11, verses 21 through 35. And then following that, the third part is events yet to come. You know, things that are, things that were, things that have not yet come to pass, right? And so events yet to come is going to be the final section, and that's chapter 11, verse 36, all the way through chapter 12, verse 4, okay? So we're going to tackle the first two parts this morning. Next week, to close out our studies in Daniel completely, to wrap up the book, we'll look at the final part of this vision, okay? So here's something that I want to encourage you to do. I was very tempted in teaching this to hold back from all the historical fulfillment of this prophecy because it's a lot. It's a lot. I'm not going to cheapen this message and this passage at all. So I'm going to give you all the historical information outlined. I can't go into details of stories, but I'm going to give you as much information as possible. And so I want to encourage you to do this. If you don't catch it all, that's okay. Podcast, YouTube, and you can have my notes. I'll send them to you. So if you're like, I would love to see all this written down. I have it. I can send it to you. So... This is going to feel a little bit like a teaching more than a preaching, but it's going to turn into a preaching at the end. Just trust me. Stay with me to the end, okay? Hold the line. All right. So let's pick up in chapter 10, verse 21, and we're going to just go, 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 and and look at all this amazing stuff that the Lord revealed to Daniel. The angel speaking in verse 21 of chapter 10, he says, However, I will tell you what is recorded in the book of truth. No one has the courage to support me against those princes. He's speaking about the spiritual battle, except Michael, your prince. And in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to strengthen and protect him. Now I will tell you the truth. Three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth will be far richer than the others. By the power he gains through his riches, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. So the angel alludes to an angelic battle that's yet to come, that's still going to happen. And he's talking about things that have happened in the past as well as he continues on from the end of chapter 10. And he says, in the first year, Darius the Mede, in the past, he says, I stood up to protect him, Darius the Mede. Now, that might be a kind of a confusing thing, but if you think about it in the spiritual realm, what would the enemy be trying to do to affect the Jewish people in this time period? Probably throw them into disfavor with the rulers of the time. And so he would be attacking Darius the Mede. Why? The Babylonians were much less favorable towards 
the nation or the Jewish people in exile than the Persians were. The Persians were actually very favorable towards them. And we saw that throughout history, and, and not to bring too fine of a point to it, but we saw that in Nehemiah last week as we talked about the rebuilding of the wall. Cyrus the Persian was the one who sent, or Hazarus the Persian was the one who sent him back, but Cyrus was the one who initially sent the order back, and the Persian rulers and kings were in favor of rebuilding Jerusalem, rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the walls, sending the people back. They generally had favor with them. And we saw that in the books of history. And so we know that there's a spiritual battle that's going on around these guys to turn them against and to harm and hinder God's people from the work that he wants them to do. So who were these four kings that he refers to at the beginning of this chapter? There are four kings that he mentions. Well, I'll show you. They're on a slide right behind me. We're going to talk about Cambyses. So we're looking at Cambyses, 530 to 522. Pseudo-Smeridus. 522 BC. He didn't make it very long. And Darius the first high stop spis, 522. Okay, you're going to hold on one second. You better forgive me for a lot of mispronunciation because it's going to happen. But just bear with me. Darius the first high stop spis. I had to say it again. 522 to 485 BC. And Ahasuerus from 485 to 464. He's the one that the text here indicates is the fourth and who would be far richer than the others. Now there's out of these Four kings, we have a lot of historical record for them, including the first three. But the fourth one that's referred to as the richest is of special note to us. Can anyone connect who Ahasuerus is here? He went by another name. We call him Xerxes. Think of the book of Esther. This is the king of that time period. We start connecting biblical timelines here. Esther was the one who became the queen of Ahasuerus. And so Ahasuerus was a very important man to biblical history, but we know to connect him to secular history and explain part of our storyline here that in 480, he had tried to conquer Greece, who was the rising power at that time. He had tried to conquer Greece, but suffered a massive naval loss at Salamis and Samos, along with a ground defeat at Platea. He came back from that defeat very bitter, very angry, and decided he was just going to kind of chill with his harem for a while and calm down. Then he got into a little bit of an issue with a queen named Vashti. And then right after that, Esther became queen. And so Ahasuerus had returned from this loss to the Grecians right before the storyline of Esther began. You insert the storyline of Esther, and following that, Ahasuerus was assassinated 15 years after he began to rule in 465 BC, and that closes out the Persian kings of that time. Now, we studied through Daniel 2, 7 and 8, so we should be pretty prepared for who follows the Persian kingdom. And you guys probably know. Who is it? Who come, what nation comes after the Persians? The Greeks, right? Who is the Greek that you think of first? Who? Alexander the Great, right? Okay, you guys are doing great. Here we go. So, talking about Alexander the Great, thinking of that timeline from the prophecies throughout Daniel, let's look at verses 3 through 4 here in Daniel 11. Then a warrior king will arise. We're talking about Alexander. Remember, this is the one who was described as a leopard with wings. He conquered the world so quickly, the known world at that time. And it says it here, a warrior king will arise, verse 3, he will rule a vast realm and do whatever he wants. Nothing can stand up against him, in other words. But as soon as he is established, his kingdom will be broken up and divided to the four winds of heaven, but not to his descendants. Just as a side note, not to his descendants. That's the first time in all the prophecies about Alexander the Great that we've read thus far that describes it will not go to one of his sons. Okay, this is a new thing, a new bit of information. It will not be the same kingdom that he ruled because his kingdom will be uprooted and will go to others besides them. So just over a century later, after the failed conquest of Ahasuerus over the Greeks, the campaign of Alexander the Great happens to conquer that region, and they get their revenge, so to speak, over the Persians. The Greeks become the superpower of the time. But as we read in history, which gives us a complete congruency amongst the accounts that we have here in the prophecies, at the height of his victory, Alexander dies. And not only does he die, but instead of the kingdom being passed to one of his children or even to one of the wives, they were all murdered, by the way. It gets divided up to four generals. Who are those four, four generals? I'm so glad you asked. I have their names right here. Ready for me to butcher some more? Here we go. Antipater, Cassander. I'll, I'll get these okay, I think. Lysimachus, Ptolemy, and Seleucus. These are the four generals that the kingdom is divided to. Now, we have historical record of this. Now, this is what's important to note about these generals. The prophecy now will switch. 
In verse 5, it's going to switch over, and it's just going to highlight the rules of the northern king and the southern king. Okay, the northern and the southern generals. That would be Seleucus, who is the um, ruler of Syria, the north, and Ptolemy over Egypt in the south. Why does that matter? Why is it important to note that the vision switches here is going to highlight these two? Well, if you know the region, let me show you. Just imagine I'm showing you something, not just my backside. No, 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 turn that off. That's not, that's not for us yet. Get that off the screen. Okay, very good. So here's what we have. Thanks, son. I couldn't do this without you. You got the Mediterranean Sea over here, right? You have the north, which is Syria, Damascus, up in this area. We all following? Is it weird to talk to my back? Down below, you have Egypt, right? Down here in kind of this region, northern Africa. Over here, you have Iraq, Iran. If you're talking about Syria in the north, and you're talking about Egypt in the south, and they don't like each other, where are they going to fight? Are they going to fight on their own turf? No, where are they going to battle? They're going to meet, right? The armies are going to meet somewhere in the middle. What's in between Syria and Egypt? Say it. Say it, Emily. (laughs) Israel. Israel is in between Syria and Egypt. And not only that, the most well-used battlefield, most likely in human history, is the Valley of Megiddo, which is right smack dab in the middle of the country. And so what's going to happen when you have armies marching up and marching down and traveling through your land to attack these people down here, and then they're traveling up to attack over there? What's going to happen to Israel? They're going to be ravaged by war. They're going to be ravaged by foreign nations marching through their land up and down and up and down again because the road that would lead to this battlefield that they often... You are so cute. Oh my gosh. Sorry. The road that would lead to these two... People on Facebook, there's a baby just smiling at me right here. I can't help it. This kid owns me. So... The, the, the road that leads to these two countries goes right through Israel and right through that valley of Megiddo. Guys, this is a very bad situation for the nation, nation of Israel. Hear this through, <laughs> hear this, you know it too. Hear this through Daniel's ears. If this is your homeland and these are your people and you're hearing a vision that's describing war between these nations, do you have any idea how hard that would be to know that your land, your people, and the place that you love is going to be torn to pieces? Absolutely torn to pieces. Verses 5 through 20 is going to focus on the kings of the north and the kings of the south. These nations will change rulers regularly and the little nation of Israel will be caught between their, the powers and will be in the middle of the conflict. So the nations will literally pass through Israel to attack each other and probably meet halfway often. Okay, so now we're going to put up the slide behind me. Carson, you go ahead. So here, let me just describe this really quick. See, this is why it feels more like a teaching than a preaching. I warned you. And you didn't leave, so it's your fault. So here's the thing. Kings of the south on the left, kings of the north on the right. You have the four Persian kings right at the very top after Cyrus, Alexander the Great, and then the four generals. Notice there's no lines for the middle two. Those are the two we're not talking about, east-west. We're going to talk about the two that are north and south. Does that make sense so far? Now, I'm going to be rounding off names and giving you situations. This is up here to kind of help you connect with the thought process. Okay? I can send you this too if you want it anytime. Okay, so the king of the south, verse 5. You can follow around the text, and I'll explain it in as we see it happen now. Really quickly, do we understand that this happens so specifically as God prophesied it to happen that we can put names to who these people are? Does that blow your mind? That God gave us a word of four centuries of history that was going to happen, called it all before it happened, and we can look back in history and put names to the people that he describes in his word. How accurate is the Bible? Blows me away. You guys need like a shock or something. That's really cool. All right, I'm going to get excited. You guys can do whatever. I'm really excited about it. Okay, verse five. My wife says I'm hyper. Is she right? Verse 5, the king of the south will grow powerful, but one of his commanders will grow more powerful and will rule a kingdom greater than his. The king of the south, that would be Ptolemy, the first Soter of Egypt. He ruled from 323 to 285 BC. He was outstripped by one of his commanders who was Seleucus, okay? Or Seleucus, if you want to do a long ooh. Seleucus uh, the first, Nicator. Now, this is where the split happens. Okay, so Seleucus, Nicator goes to the north, Ptolemy, Soter in the south, and so now you have the Seleucid kingdom, and you have the Ptolemaic kingdom, and these are the two that are going to be fighting against each other as this vision unfolds. 
Okay, so we have um, Seleucus first Nicator, who ruled from 311 to 280 over here in the the north. He is going to rule over the Syrian area, area, which will also include Babylonia and Media, and he'll establish the Seleucid kingdom that will grow to be greater than Ptolemy's Egypt, which is the southern region. Make sense so far? Okay, so verse 5 says this will happen. That's exactly what happened. These are the guys that it happened with down the road after this was already prophesied. Verse 6 says this, After some years they will form an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north to seal the agreement. She will not retain power, and his strength will not endure. She will be given up together with her entourage, her father, and the one who supported her during those times. So the king of the south, Ptolemy II, Philadelphus, who ruled from 285 to 246 BC, would make an alliance with the king of the north, which at that time would be Antiochus II Theos from 261 to 246, sealing the agreement by giving his daughter, the Ptolemaic princess Bernice, to marry Antiochus. Now, Bernice wouldn't retain power, as the prophecy states, as Antiochus's former wife, Laodice, who was a little sore about it, would murder Antiochus, Bernice, and their child. And so that happened in history and fulfilled how all this would play out, as the Bible says. By the way, violent families didn't begin with the Romans. You know, like you read about the Roman Empire, the Herods, and these violent things that happened amongst their families didn't start with them. In fact, it started with Cain and Abel. They were the beginning of the violent family. And so this has been a sin issue for a very long time. And to look back through secular history, you will see this storyline replayed. Why does it pay to look at history? Because it's good to remember and to see the patterns and to recognize what's happening in the now. History does repeat itself. And it's important for us to remember that as we look at our country. History repeats itself. I'll just leave that out there in open space. Verse 7. In the place of the king of the south, one from her family will rise up, come against the army, and enter the fortress of the king of the north. He will take action against them and triumph. He will even take their gods captive to Egypt with their metal images and their precious articles of silver and gold. For some years he will stay away from the king of the north, who will enter the kingdom of the king of the south, and then return to his own land. So the literal historical, you know, uh, picture of this or, or proof of this that we saw happen was one from Bernice's family, her brother Ptolemy III, um, Eurigetes, who ruled from 246 to 221 B- BC, would avenge her murder by storming Antioch, which was the fortress of the king of the north. Seleucus II Callinicus, 246 to 226 BC, and he would kill Laodus, who had you know killed Bernice and Antiochus and the child. Ptolemy III would even seize Seleucid gods and valuables, bringing them back to Egypt. Now, let me just, I know we're talking about the details of people, but do you realize that that is a very specific detail that he would even steal things? He would take the gods and valuables and bring them back. That's exactly what happened. We have it in secular history. He did exactly. It's almost like these guys are reading the Bible and carrying it out, but they weren't because they were pagan and they just did it because God said they would. Cool, right? All right. Now, (laughs) this is one cup of coffee, by the way. All of this was prophesied beforehand. Now, let's read verses 10 through 19, and we're going to kind of connect a bigger chunk of Scripture because I've warmed you up now. We should be ready. You got your historical minds on? All right. I'm just getting ready for the luau. His sons will mobilize for war and assemble a large number of armed forces. They will advance, sweeping through like a flood, and will again wage war as far as his fortress. Infuriated, the king of the south will march out to fight with the king of the north, who will raise a large army, but they will be handed over to his enemy. When the army is carried off, he will become arrogant and cause tens of thousands to fall, but he will not triumph. The king of the north will again raise a multitude larger than the first. After some years, he will advance with a great army and many supplies. In those times, many will rise up against the king of the south. Violent ones among your own people will assert themselves to fulfill a vision, but they will fail. Notice that little insert there. Some people in Israel are going to get involved in this conflict, and he refers to them as violent ones. Okay, we'll come back to that. Then verse 15 says, the king of the north will come, build up a siege ramp and capture a well-fortified city. I'll point it out in a minute, but that happened specifically. It was the city of Sidon. Crazy. He even highlights something that happened that was very notable historically, calls it out way ahead of time, centuries before. The forces of the south will not stand. Even their select troops will not be able to resist. Verse 16, the king of the north will come against him will do um, whatever he wants, it says, and no one can oppose him. 
He will establish himself in the beautiful land. Where's the beautiful land? Where would it, Israel, right? Anything that's called the beautiful land, we're talking about Israel, okay? With total destruction in his hands. So this isn't going well. Verse 17, he will resolve to come with the force of his whole kingdom and will reach an agreement with him. He will give him a daughter in marriage to destroy it, but she will not stand with him or support him. Then he will turn his attention to the coasts and islands and capture many, but a commander will put an end to his taunting. Instead, he will turn his taunts against him. He will turn back his attention to the fortress of his own land, but he will stumble, fall, and be no more. Okay, so let me break all this down and outline it historically. The sons of Seleucus II, Seleucus III, um, Seranus from 226 and 223, and Antiochus III from 223 to 187, which way, would wage war as far as the Ptolemaic fo- fortress Raphia in southern Israel. They actually got that far, and they would wage war down there in the Ptolemaic um, region. Um, which connects to Israel. So again, this battle's happening on um, God's people's land. Verses 11 through 12 speak of the king of the south. That would be Ptolemy IV, Philippator, from 221 to 203 BC um, of Egypt. That's, again, the south. He would counterattack the king of the north, which at that time would be Antiochus III, which would be 219 to 218 BC. Although both would command large armies, the result would be a very great victory for the Ptolemies. So now the south is winning. And as a result of his success, Ptolemy IV would become arrogant and slaughter tens of thousands of Seleucid troops, just wipes out a bunch of them. Yet he would not be able to maintain his dominance over the Seleucid kingdom. This slaughter is spoken of in history. It was vile. It was a vile thing. Verses 13 through 15. Fifteen years later, the king of the north, Antiochus III, would raise an even greater army and attack the Ptolemies in Phoenicia and Israel. Again, note, these battles are happening in Israel. It's affecting the people. It's terrorizing their land. Antiochus III would receive support against the king of the south, who at that time was Ptolemy V Epiphanes, 203 to 181 BC, and the Ptolemies. This support would come from Jewish rebels, here called the violent ones. So he received help in this battle. Antiochus III's forces would win a resounding victory, even capturing the well-fortified city of Sidon in 199 to 198 BC. Reading about that is fascinating. I encourage it. That's a notable victory and something that God's word called said exactly that this fortified city would be taken, and it was. Verses 16 through 17 speak of the king of the north, Antiochus III, how he would make the beautiful land of Israel a possession of the Seleucid kingdom in 198 and force a peace agreement on the Ptolemies. Antiochus III would give his daughter Cleopatra to Ptolemy V as a wife, hoping to control the Ptolemaic kingdom with her. In other words, let's do this through marriage, and now I have a foothold there, and I can kind of control them. That backfired, though because Cleopatra actually helped her Ptolemaic husband and must have liked him or wanted to see him beat dad or something. And she stood by her husband and didn't betray her father. Imagine that, a wife standing with her husband. The nerve. Verses 18 through 19, Antiochus III would then turn his attention to the lands around the Mediterranean Sea, but would be defeated, notice this, this is an important turn, be defeated by the Roman commander Lucius Cornelius Scipio, I'm waiting for BJ to finish laughing. That's both services he left. Scipio. <laughs> That's, it's Old Testament funny. That's right. This would force Antiochus to focus on his own country where he would stumble, fall, and be no more, being killed by a mob defending the temple of Zeus in, in Elimaeus as Antiochus tried to pillage it. So he was killed by a mob. He was trying to do something he shouldn't do. But notice something. Did you notice that change? Who stopped him? to where he had to go running home again. It was Lucius Cornelius Scipio, but where's he from? He beat him at Thermopylae, by the way, 191. Roman era. Okay, so we just crossed over from the Grecian era into the Roman era. Why is the Roman era important? Because it's the time of Christ. Jesus was born in the Roman era. So now we're crossing over. Isn't history cool? I like history. Sorry, guys. Now, just a second. Every detail of this prophecy, and there's so many more details. I really am just giving you the cliff notes. Every detail of this prophecy has a historical fulfillment. Has a historical fulfillment. This was spoken before it happened. But hear it through the ears of Daniel. His people, his nation, his land, they have no leadership. They have no power. And they're stuck in between all of this, getting pounded from either side. This is the result of sin. This is the result of God's failure 
God's people, not God's failure, God's people and their failure to worship him and him alone. They are paying the price for idolatry because all who worship idols become like them. Having eyes to see, they do not hear. Having ears to hear, they, or having eyes to see, they do not see. Having ears to hear, they do not hear. Having mouths to speak, they do not speak. Read Psalm 105. Read Isaiah chapter 6. We see this over and over again as a theme in scripture that all who worship idols become like them. They become like that idol. God's people are powerless to do anything about what's going on here, but God will have grace on his people because of his promises because of his goodwill, not because of them, but they are going to pay and continue to pay for their idolatry. And he told them that this would happen. That doesn't make it any easier, does it, if you're Daniel? It doesn't make it any easier for us, does it, when we watch our nation suffer and pay for the immorality, for the little babies that have been killed, for the injustice of our country, It doesn't make it any easier to watch it happen, does it? In fact, it's pretty horrible to watch. What if what we were seeing prophesied here was our country, our people, our homeland? I think we'd hear it the way that Daniel heard it. It'd be tragic, be heartbreaking. Can we wrap our minds around Daniel living in exile his entire adult life and the weight of what he's being told? That things are not going to go on to this happily ever after scenario in this portion of history. Now he's going to be given a further along, bigger picture, and he's seen that in his other visions. But knowing what's coming is a weighty thing to bear. But we can't run from it, and we can't hide from it. And what did Daniel do as he suffered and as he wept over these things, as he heard these things? He strengthened himself in the Lord. Daniel strengthened himself in the Lord and continued to be faithful to God in exile in the midst of all the prediction and in the midst of all the prophecy that was coming. Daniel remained faithful to the Lord. He didn't let it shake his faith. Looking at the trouble of our world, looking at the trouble of our time should never shake our faith. It should strengthen it because he who has spoken to us is faithful. Don't let the situations around you shake you. In fact, we know from Acts 14.22 that we must suffer many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. We are going to face struggle. We are going to face trial. Strengthen yourself in the Lord. I think of David, you know, in that one story where he comes back, you know, he's trying to fight with the Philistines, like not with them, but alongside them, and that didn't work out, and he had to go back. And they get back to the town where he and his men and all their families were, and he's with his guys, and they get there, and the town's been overrun. Marauders came through, took their wives, took their children, took all their animals, and all the guys are like, we're going to kill you, bro. You're done. You're a terrible leader, Right? And it said, and David was like, they're going to kill me. And it said in that passage, but David strengthened himself in the Lord. David strengthened himself in the Lord. He looked at the situation. It looks bleak. It looks bad. Even my guys who are under my command want to kill me right now. And he looked to the Lord and strengthened himself in God. And he went and got him back. He went and fought a battle and won the families back again. Let the Lord rally us in seasons like this. My second reason for pausing here, that was the first reason, is that this concludes the first section that we're going to look at. That's the first section of the history. We've gotten all the way down to Antiochus Epiphanes down here. And that's what we're going to focus on in verses 20 through 35. We're going to talk about Antiochus Epiphanes and what he did to the nation of Israel in history that we have account, full historical account of. Beginning that section... Just before we get to Antiochus, in verse 20, in his place, moving along the line, one will arise who will send out a tax collector for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he will be broken, though not in anger or in a battle. In his place, verse 21, a despised person, this is Antiochus, Epiphanes. A despised person will arise. Royal honors will be given to him, but he will come during a time of peace and seize the kingdom by intrigue. A flood of forces will be swept away before him. They will be broken, as well as the covenant prince. After an alliance is made with him, he will act deceitfully. He will rise to power with a small nation. During a time of peace, he will come into the richest parts of the province and do what his fathers and predecessors never did. He will lavish plunder, loot, and wealth on his followers, and he will make plans against fortified cities, but only for a time. With a large army, he will stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south. 
The king of the south will prepare for battle with an extremely large and powerful army, but he will not succeed because plots will be made against him. Those who eat his provisions will destroy him. His army will be swept away and many will fall slain. The two kings whose hearts are bent on evil will speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for still the end will come at the appointed time. The king of the north will return to his land with great wealth, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant. He will take action, then return to his own land. By the way, I'm going to point all of this out in history, so don't get, don't get overwhelmed. Verse 29, at the appointed time, he'll come again to the south, but this time will not be like the first. Ships of Gatim will come against him, and being intimidated, he will withdraw. Then he will rage against the holy covenant and take action. On his return, he will favor those who abandon the holy covenant. Verse 31 is important. His forces will rise up and desecrate the temple fortress. They will abolish the regular sacrifice and set up the abomination of desolation. With flattery, he will corrupt those who act wickedly toward the covenant, but the people who know their God will be strong and take action. Those who have insight among the people will give understanding to many, yet they will fall by the sword and flame, and they will be captured and plundered for a time. When they fall, they will be helped by some, but many others will join them insincerely. Some of those who have insight will fall, so that they may be refined, purified, and cleansed until the time of the end, for it will still come at the appointed time. In verse 20, as we began this section, the king who would arise in his place was Seleucus IV, Philippator, 187 to 175, who had sent his tax collector, Heliodorus, uh, to collect money with which to pay the heavy indemnity he owed to Rome. Notice the Roman pressure is starting to happen on these other nations as Rome takes power. Okay, And after his short reign, Seleucus IV was killed not in anger or in battle, but he was poisoned by his tax collector. He wasn't doing what he was supposed to. Verses 21 through 35 then highlight the atrocities of Antiochus IV Epiphanes who ruled from 175 to 163. We know him as the little horn from Daniel chapter 8, verses 9 through 12. Also, in verses 23 through 25 of the same chapter, he would have a terrible and oppressive effect on the Jewish people in the near term. His reign is a picture of the future world ruler, the Antichrist. You're going to make a lot of correlations and connections looking at Antiochus Epiphanes and the Antichrist because he really is a foreshadow of what he's going to do. The Antichrist will also oppress the Jewish people and he's, um, Antiochus is the foreshadow of what's to come. In verse 21, and this is fascinating stuff because this prophecy is so detailed about what Antiochus would do, you can go line for line through his history and see it happen. One thing after another. He wasn't of a royal line. He didn't come from royal background. He took control by intrigue while the rightful heir Demetrius was held in Rome. So he kind of stole the kingdom, if you will. The prediction called him a despised person because of his hatred of the Jewish people, his attempt to destroy Judaism, his desecration of the temple, and his megalomania, by the way, in calling himself Epiphanes. So by calling himself Epiphanes, that means manifest one or illustrious one. He's basically saying he was like deity. He added that title to his own name. Never heard of anyone who's added a title to their name to make themselves greater than they are. Like Fuhrer. Um, people of that time put a twist on his name. It was funny. They called him Epimanus, which means madman. And so when you see him written about by other cultures, they would call him the madman because he was, well, you, you guessed it. Verse 22, despite Ptolemy the sixth Philometer, which was uh, 181 to 146 BC, attacking with a flood of forces, Antiochus would be able to defeat him and depose the covenant prince. As you see in verse 22, it says covenant prince. He deposed the Jewish high priest Onaeus the third at that time. We saw that happen. In verses 23 through 24, Antiochus the fourth would increase in power by sharing the wealth of his conquest, lavishing plunder, loot, and wealth on his followers. By the way, history repeats itself. People who are um, dictator-like will just shower people who support them with all these good gifts and treat other people like what? Dirt. See, for example, Hitler. Verses 25 through 26 refer back to the war with Ptolemy the sixth predicting that not only would the power of Antiochus IV defeat Ptolemy VI, but also that plots against him would cause his army to be swept away. Verses 27 through 28 highlight that after the defeat of Ptolemy VI, Ptolemy VII took control of Egypt. Then the other two kings, which would be Antiochus and Ptolemy VI, would meet and they would speak lies at the same table. Did you notice that? Verses 27 and 28. They were plotting to bring Ptolemy VI back into the throne. They wanted to re remove the seventh and put him in the throne. But after initial limited success, they would eventually fail. Then Antiochus the fourth, 
Epiphanes, would return to the north because he's the king of the north, having plundered Egypt, and with his heart set against the holy covenant. Did you notice that part of the passage? On his way home, he attacked Israel. This would be the last time. He attacked Israel on his way home and killed 80,000 Jewish men, women, and children in 169 B.C. Verses 29 through 30 speak of Antiochus IV as he launches another attack against Egypt, but this time the ships of Katim, the Roman fleet, led by Gaius Populus Laenus, would force him to withdraw in humiliation. Fascinating historical story around this. Antiochus faced him. They stood face to face with each other. And um, <clears throat> Gaius told him, you need to make a choice. You're either going to go to war with us, you're going to go back home. Antiochus told him that he wanted to think about it because he wanted to go back and regather forces to come back with a larger group and fight him. And Gaius drew a circle around Antiochus and said, you can meet anyone that you want to talk to right here in this circle. Grab all your helpers and have them come over here and talk to you. But if you walk out of the circle, you're at war. That's how the Romans worked. (laughs) The Romans were like, you want to fight us? Step out of the circle. If not, you're going home. And so Antiochus pulled back. He ran home with his tail between his legs. But what do we know about when an arrogant, prideful person is humiliated? They like to take it out on people who are weaker than them, don't they? They don't take defeat very well, and they like to take out their anger and their frustration on people who are weaker. Q in verses 31 through 32. He goes after Israel again. And this time, while returning to Syria, he desecrates the temple in Jerusalem. And he, in a prefigure of the future Antichrist actions, by abolishing the regular sacrifice, he commits the abomination of desolation as he sets up an altar to Zeus in the temple. Now, if you're a Jewish person and you hear that a pagan came and set up an altar to a Greek god and sacrificed a pig on it, that's just, that'll make your ears bleed. I mean, that's, that's unbelievable. It's so unbelievably blasphemous to them. That's what Antiochus did. He desecrated their temple as he sacrificed a pig on it. And in response, you'll notice this in the text, the people who know their God will take action. The angel tells Daniel, this is what God has said. The people who know their God will take action as expressed in the Maccabean revolt. The Maccabees rose up, Judas Maccabeus, Judas the hammer, if you will. Verses 33 through 35, we see that the Maccabees would experience suffering in their, suffering in their battle with Antiochus, but in the end, the Maccabees would defeat him. They'd push him out of Israel, they would win that battle, and they'd rededicate the temple in Jerusalem and establish a festival that we all know as Hanukkah. The festival of Hanukkah, or the feast of Hanukkah, is in celebration of the rededication of the temple after the Maccabean defeat of Antiochus. So there's your Jewish history for the day. You're like, that's a whole lot more than Jewish history. But here's the thing. It's interesting to note that Jesus celebrated that, actually, in John chapter 10. He celebrated Hanukkah there. Um, and Jewish people still observe this today. This was spoken of four centuries before it happened. Four centuries before this came to pass in so much detail that we can look back and go, yeah, that's the Maccabees. That's the Hasmonean dynasty over here. That's Antiochus. That's what he did here. And we can call these things backwards. Now, what's great is we're not done. Like, we're done for this morning. I'm going to close up here. Really, I'm almost done. But like, this prophecy continues on and switches over to the other side of where we are. We have this amazing ability to look back and see what happened and to look forward and go, there's still more to come. There's still more that's coming after this. There's still victory to be had for God, but there's going to be struggle. There's going to be trials. And we'll connect that into Revelation next week. But why in the world did Pastor Mike take the time this morning to go through all that history? I asked myself that this morning while I was in the shower. Because I had all this prepared and I was like, should I just throw all this out and just like, you know, just give a real quick overview? And the Lord spoke to me and reminded me of one of the most powerful sermons in all of scripture. And that would be in Acts chapter seven, when Stephen stood before the Sanhedrin and gave them a history lesson and showed them that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the answer, that he was the one that they had been looking for but rejected because he wasn't what they wanted him to be. Stephen gave them a history lesson. And then I started thinking about the prophets, how often the prophets would give a history lesson. You guys, 
History is there to remind us of God's faithfulness and of his ability to predict the future. Not only of how faithful he's been to keep his word, but that he will continue to do so. And so as my mind works, I immediately thought, is this the word of God? Is Daniel chapter 11 the word of God? This is an open room. Is it, is it the word of God? Yeah, absolutely. Turn with me to John chapter 17. It'll be on the screen, but if you want to look at this, I, I encourage you to connect this to Daniel 11 this morning. John chapter 17 is the end of the upper room discourse. Jesus is praying over his disciples after teaching them some incredible things. And in John 17, Jesus prays this. In verses 14 through 17, he's speaking to the Father. He says, I have given them your word. The world hated them because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. What are we sanctified by? His word. And what is his word? Truth. And what is Daniel 11? His word. And so why do we read it? Because it's truth and it sanctifies us. That's not circular thinking. That's validating the thought process. Why is sanctification so important? Because God's work of sanctification in us means that he is progressively changing our character into Christ. He is progressively changing our character through the experiences of life, both the failures and the success, and he is turning us into Jesus. He is molding us into the image of his son. He is purifying us. He is making us holy. What you have gone through in the last month has been part of God's sanctification process. The question is, are you kicking against it or are you receiving it and rolling with it? That doesn't excuse sin. That means that God works even through our failure to make us more like him. And you guys, this is the powerful thing about this. God is sanctifying us through his truth, through his word. And as we look at Daniel chapter 11 and we look at all that God did and how he fulfilled it, we can stand at this pivot point and go, if he fulfilled parts one and two, then what we read about three is going to happen. And if you need something for the now, let let me share this with you. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. I'll give you two things. I'll give you two passages because sometimes we look and go, okay, I see that. I see that. But what about right now? What about the now? What am I supposed to do now? What's for me right now? What are God's promises for me now? There are lots of them, but let me give you two because this is what I really want us to walk away with this morning as well. I have been given all authority, Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18, in heaven and on earth. How much? All of it. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And we're like, okay, this is the Great Commission. I love this. Don't miss the end. And be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Christian, do not grow weary in doing good, Galatians 6, 9 says, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Jesus is with you right now because he said, I'm taking you all the way to the end of the age. You're like, it just feels like I've done too much. I I, I haven't, he, he's gonna, why would he stay with me? Because he loves you based on his nature. He loves you based on who he is. And he said in Hebrews chapter 13, five, I will never leave you or abandon you. The writer of Hebrews says, be satisfied with what you have in this life. For he himself has said, I will never leave you or abandon you. God is not leaving you. He is not going to walk away from you. He is not sick and tired of you. We get this picture of God like he's that angry grandparent. You know, get out of here. Time for my nap. You know, I don't know if you guys had that. Like every grandparent I had was grumpy. But like, you know, I, I just I just tried to stay away. It's very unsafe people at the time. And so... I just tried to steer clear because they never really wanted me around them. But sometimes we project these false pictures of human failure into our lives. We're like, this person who treated me badly is surely who God is. Jesus said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will never abandon you. I am always with you. And I'm not only always with you to the end of the age. What does that mean? Till his kingdom comes. He's not going to leave us. That's a promise we have now. And do you know why we can believe it with our whole heart, with our whole soul? Because he has done everything he said he will do. Because every bit of history that he predicted through prophecy has happened. And you're like, but some of it hasn't. It's going to. 
If it hasn't happened yet, it will. Because if we look back from our point in history, he has done everything that he said he would do. And he has done it to the letter. And so when he tells you and he tells me, I'll never abandon you. I am always with you. Peace. Absolute peace in your soul. He's with you. He's not going to walk away. Every single person in this world could walk away from you and Jesus will not. He is always going to be by you. Believer, Christian, never forget it. And remind each other of it often. When you have conversations with people around you in your family or in your church and they tell you things like, I'm just so depressed. I'm so sick of this. I'm so tired. This person betrayed me. This person said this about me. I'm so tired of this and being treated this way. Jesus said, I am with you all the way to the end of the age and I will never leave you. And he has said over and over again, I love you. You belong to me. It's all we need. It's enough. All the way to the end of the age and then glory. Amen. Father, thank you for your word as a confirmation. And I know that this is just a, a blast of historical backing. But Lord, it's important for us to look at the historical record and to see that everything you said happened. That every bit of truth that you gave to us came to pass. May that strengthen our resolve as your church to not be shaken by what the world says, but to look at the evidence, to look at the proof of your word. God, I know that it encourages me so much when I look at prophecy to just be fresh, in a fresh way, blown away yet again. That you see things outside of time. And that as I am finite and in time, I need to trust in your infinite out-of-time perspective. May we trust in the one who is timeless, spaceless, and immaterial. May we trust in the God that created us. And Lord, I I ask that you would build our faith, that part of our sanctification would be this morning. Lord, I know that sometimes I feel so simplistic. I feel so childlike in that I just need to hear that you're never going to leave me. I need to hear that you're never going to abandon me. We know it's true in your word, but we need to hear it. It's just like when we love somebody, we can't tell them once and expect them to know it for the rest of their life. We repeat it. We remind them. We show them. And you have shown us in your word, and you continue to show us day by day how much you love us, how much you care. Take us on to the end of the road. Wherever that road ends for us, Lord, physically in this life, we know the eternity awaits. And so help us to see this this current time through the eyes of eternity. May that apply to our jobs, to our church, to our families, to our nation, to our world. Jesus, you are coming again. We cannot wait for that. Lord, would you, as we spend a moment quietly, just settle our hearts into that peace. Maybe some have been looking for peace and unable to find it. Let your peace settle into our hearts because the one who has spoken to us is faithful. And as your word says, he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it at the day of Christ Jesus. You will finish what you started because you always do. You always do. Strengthen our faith with that. Church, let's just keep our heads bowed, our eyes closed. Let's let the Lord speak that truth into us, and then we'll worship together.